Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to enter into <coughs> Proverbs chapter 18 today. We've been in the book of Proverbs now for <coughs> 17 chapters. <coughs> well over, it's taken us probably two or three years to get to this point. We have uh, really taken our time with it and really wanted to focus on all the truth of it. I've told you many, many times how absolutely vital the book of Proverbs is to uh, our Christian life. The Bible talks about that the book of Proverbs contains for us the, the issues of life. I, I don't know of another book in all of the Word of God that is more uh, potent or powerful for where we're at that gives us the insight into just almost every issue that you're going to have to deal with. Personally, I believe that the whole Bible is built around the book of Proverbs. Probably, if you want to know the truth, the whole Bible is built around the five wisdom books. That's probably a better way to say it. But Proverbs is certainly a key book uh, that deals with that. And you know, when you're coming through any book of the Bible, but it's certainly been true in Proverbs, you'll come along and you'll go through things and you'll get some great principles on life. You'll see some great doctrinal things about the future, uh, you know, understanding how it works. But every once in a while, You'll come up against a, a passage or a verse or maybe even a chapter that just stands out all by itself and just cries out to be, to be laid out and preached. I think in all of the Bible, we went through this when we came through the book of Proverbs early on, probably the greatest, deepest chapter in all the Bible. And if you want to talk about a, a passage of Scripture that goes down really deep and probably is the deepest spiritually connected chapter in all the Bible, it would be found in Proverbs, and it would be Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, without a doubt, is the deepest chapter in the Word of God. There's so much that it would be like that everything else you're going to understand and learn about God and the Word of God and what God is doing found in that chapter. You're going to find that you find that as you come through different books of the Bible. And Proverbs chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, is a passage that uh, is, is one of those passages. It's, it's a standalone passage as far as I am concerned. I remember years ago, uh, when I was a young Christian, I had a lot of questions about a lot of things in Christianity. I saw, I, I, I'm always a, I'm, I'm just a simple kind of guy. I'm not really deep in a lot of things in my thinking. I, I can't remember the technical term for it, but there's a, there's a theory out there that the, the simplest answer is the right answer. And, and I've always followed that. And I think that uh, the simplest approach to the Bible is always the best approach to the Bible. And I never understood why men wanted to make the Bible so complicated. I never understood, uh, and I, you know, I think through things. I, I, I have to, I, I'm going to stand before God someday. I'm going to give an account of my life. I know that. And so I look at things around me and what people say, and I, I ask myself questions. And over the course of my years in the Bible, I've answered most of them. I still have some I don't have uh, the, quite the answer I'm looking for yet, but the majority of them I do. And I always wondered how that uh, hearing what man said, that you had to spend uh, years and years and years, you know, studying Greek or Hebrew, uh, going to a Bible college to get the seminary training you need to have. Most churches in this country wouldn't even look at a candidate for a pastor that doesn't have several degrees behind his name. And, and how the whole world lifted up the Bible to such an unapproachable position. And I thought to myself, and this is just me, I thought to myself, Someday God is going to judge me by the book that he gave me. And someday the Bible says the books are open. When I stand in the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to open up the word of God. And he's going to judge everything that I did. 
He's going to judge every attitude that I have. He's going to judge everything that I involve myself in based on the book that he gave me that were to be the guide in my life. And I ask myself, if the Bible is that hard to get, if the Bible is that hard to understand, if the average person who just like me and you had a tough time getting out of grade school, if the average person has to come to that kind of understanding uh, in education to learn what God has for him, which the majority of the people on planet Earth will never do, how in the world is a righteous God going to judge me when he gave me a book and told me he was going to judge me by it, but he gave me a book that was so far out of my reach that I could never just learn it? And that really was a question that I struggled with for a long time. And I, I, I really got the answer when I came to Proverbs chapter 8 in the first seven verses. It really helped me understand some things. I was like most of you when I first got saved. I was naive. The night I got saved and I came down to get right with God and came down to remember it. I came down and got right with the Lord, you know, and wanted to dedicate my life to the Lord. I, I thought all of Christianity loved God. I thought everybody loved the Bible. Well, if you'd have told me at that time in my life when I went down there and I was slobbering and crying all over the pulpit, you know, and, and people were slipping and sliding and everything. If you would have told me that there were deacons in a church that were fighting with other deacons and there were people in the church that were mad over this and mad over that. If you'd have told me that there were men who, 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 who didn't believe the Bible yet claimed to be Christian and they were bickering and fighting over stupid stuff, I, I, I'd have called you a liar. But you see... Forty-some years later, I know that that's, that's the reality of life in Christianity. And it's a thing where, you know, we as God's people perfect ourselves every day in our life. And we should come to the point with a perfect book that we ought to be able to handle anything that comes in our world. But the problem is, we're perfect, perfected people who live in an imperfect world. And there lies the struggle. And I, and I looked and I thought to myself... How is God going to do that? How is God going to come down and judge me based on a word that he gave me when everybody out there is telling me it's so hard to believe and get? Why, you know what? Most of God's people get so defeated when they start reading the Bible after they get saved just because everybody else out there tells them it's such a hard book to get. And I've told you before, everybody, I don't care who you are, you have and I have two fundamental problems when it comes to learning your Bible. When you read your Bible. And this is why so many people stop reading it. You'll start reading in your Bible, which is a good thing. You'll get saved right with God. How many times somebody's told me, where should I start to read? Where should I go? Should I start in the Old Testament or start in the New Testament? And some people say, well, you need to start in the New Testament because it's easier. Read that through once, maybe twice, and then tackle the Old Testament. And then read that. Other people say, just start out. Let God show you uh, what, what he's got for you and just start reading it. And I, and I understand all that, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you why people get discouraged when it comes to reading the Bible. One, they've already been told it's such a hard book to get. Everybody who's anybody has said... The Bible is really a hard book and you really got to invest <coughs> all of your life and get into all these other things to get it. I understand that. But I want to tell you something. That Bible is not a hard book to understand. It's just a hard book to believe. And when you begin to believe it and you begin to understand what it is, you realize how simplistic it really is and how God gave you uh, the word of God that he wanted you to have. One day in England... 
Tyndale, who translated the early English translation of the Bible. He was among all of his peers, and they were criticizing him because he was translating in a Bible for a common man that could have and read the Word of God. And at that time in England, the Bible was held up in such an unprecedented way that that, uh, the common man was never equated with anybody who could ever learn the Scriptures. It all was housed in the great minds of the great scholars. And he looked outside the window and he saw a plowboy that was plowing across the field there. And he said, you know what, gentlemen? Someday that plowboy will know more of the Scriptures and more about God than all the scholars in England. And you got your King James Bible today because a man like that had the vision. Had the vision. He had the vision. And of course, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 through 7, is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible in the aspect of a man who is totally against the Word of God. It's about men who their whole lives are built around one thing, and that is to destroy other people's faith in the Word of God. In Christianity, I could always understand how the world would do it. But I could never understand how God's people could do it. And then I got to Proverbs chapter 18. And it began to unlock a lot of things for me. I began to get an incredible inside look at men and women, but mostly men, who will sit in judgment on the Word of God. I began to see a mindset behind the great issue in the church today. And you know, the church down through history, the church down through history is laid out for you in the Bible through seven periods of church history. God did it that way so it would be easy to break it down and easy to grasp and easy to learn. And I've told you before that in every period of church history, God's people had to face an issue that came up that threatened the very existence of what they believed, and they had to take their stand on the truth of God's Word. And in every age and dispensation, as you come through a a, a period of church history, you begin to see how every aspect of the church in each period had to deal with a specific doctrinal issue. And I've told you before, the issue today for the Laodicean church, the issue that you have to decide for yourself today is simply this. Do you have the very words of God that he wants you to have? Do you have the very words of God that he orchestrated, put into play, brought them down and put them in your lap that you can have the very absolute perfect word of God without any error or any mixture of error? And if you don't today, you're wasting your time. You are wasting your time. You know, the first sin that is recorded in the Bible... It was never connected with Adam and Eve. People who have a passing acquaintance with the Word of God, if you would ask them what is the first sin in the Bible, they would tell you Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve, in the chronological order of your Bible, uh, in Genesis, uh, is the first book. Uh, in chapter uh, in chapter 3, uh, it looks like it's that way. But the truth of the matter is, it goes back, the first sin in the Bible goes back a long way before Adam and Eve. When you go back to Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, you'll realize a place that was long before Adam and Eve ever came on this planet. You'll find a place where a man by the name of Lucifer, who had everything over to God's creation, he decided in his heart that he was smarter than God. He decided in his heart that he was going to exalt himself above the thrones of God. 
He decided in his heart that he was going to sit on the sides of the north and he was going to be like the Most High God. Now, most people read that account in there and they never understand the importance of finding something in the Bible for the first time. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. The biggest problem that man has today, the biggest problem that human beings have today was laid out for you long before Adam and Eve ever had their problem. The biggest problem that man has today is laid down for you with Lucifer when he tried to lead a revolt against God. And what was that, what was that revolt over? It was over the revolt of the authority of the Word of God. And the biggest problem that every man and every woman is going to have in their life today is the same problem that the devil had way back there that you want to be like God. You want to be like the Most High God. We see it in everything. We certainly see it in, in the business world. Men love power. Women love power. Everybody loves power and money. It gives them the ability to be able to call the shots for the world. We're going to have an election next coming Tuesday. Whoever wins, going to be the most powerful person in the world. <clears throat> and they're going to sit on a throne, basically, where they're going to, at their whim, uh, things around the world are going to change. Certainly things in this country. You find doctors who go in and work with people, and not all doctors, but many of them develop what we call the God complex, that they think that they're God because they actually are like God, because they actually have the ability to save somebody's life. They have the ability in a trauma unit when somebody comes in and they're that far from dying. They have the ability to rush in there and they order this and they order that and they tell this and give me four things in it. Give me 10 cc's of this. And, and I love that kind of talk, by the way. And they jump in there and they, they save that person's life. You can't do that as an unsaved person and maybe many of God's people can't do it either. Well, you don't come to the place where you think that you have something special and that old God complex begins to come in. It happens in human nature. And you know what? It happens in Christianity. It happens with preachers. It happens with preachers who, who get into churches and they, they think they're so important and they think they're so uh, vitally aspect to the church uh, that their, their position as pastor elevates them to a place where they're actually over the people and not one with them. And it's a, they call it the doctrine of the Nicolaitans back in the, in the book of Revelation. And they exalt their position to the place in their own minds where they, they actually, they actually are, are not one with the people anymore. You can't ever talk with them. You can't ever get anything from them. You can't get an appointment with them. Everything, everything now is unreachable. And the first sin in the Bible that is recorded wasn't connected with Adam and Eve. It starts and sets up the first problem that man will have to deal with. And that is wanting to be like God. Sitting in the seat of God. Showing yourself that you are God. And according to Romans chapter 1, talking about Gentiles, when man tries to take God's place, he has to set up judgment on all that God is and all that God does. And everything that he does, he has to put himself to make himself like God. Man has an insatiable desire to invent things that will get him around the truth of God. Do you know that? Man works at it 24-7. Many times we look at it and we don't have the wisdom and the understanding to understand why. But that Bible says in Proverbs chapter 19 verse 21 that there's many devices in a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Man all his life 
shaved and unshaved. Man all his life will, will invent things to get him around the truth of God. In an unshaved man's case, those many devices are philosophy. He goes back and he philosophizes about the world. He creates his own reason why the world exists. And he lays out completely false and completely bogus and nothing to do with real truth of life. But he creates an aurora of truth. You see it in theology. You see it in psychiatry. You see it in religion. You see it in science. You see it in governments. The idea that a government is going to, that is a democracy, is going to go around the world and establish all other countries with the same democracy that they have. It's all built around a false education system. A false education system that may teach you some things and may give you some things, but elevates you to the place where the whole Educate, and I'm not saying you shouldn't get educated. I'm saying you ought to be smart about your education. Old Bob Jr. Sr. said it. He said, education without salvation is damnation. Education exists for one person, to exalt yourself to a point where you can learn some things, you can get some things. But at the end result, man, old nature takes that and knows that information is power. An unsaved man, <clears throat> he'll invent evolution. You know why Charles Darwin came up with evolution? And he wasn't the first one that did it. I mean, the Egyptians believed in evolution. The Babylonians, I mean, nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> but you know why evolution caught on so quickly? Because that was during a time when there was a great revival going on <clears throat> in the United States <clears throat> right around that Civil War period. Evolution and the concept that man has evolved from nothing to something was a great deterrent to the fact that the Bible was truth. And so men will invest their whole lives into that kind of stuff just so they can get out from under the conviction they're under what it gets from the Word of God. I've seen men and read the stories about guys like Dr. Leakey who were paleontologists and were anthropologists. And they have spent their whole lives, spending their whole lives going to Africa Dusting down and digging around and finding a tooth. Finding a piece of a jawbone about that big. Finding a bone of the elbow. And then from that little piece of bone, construct a man six feet tall that walked over a hunt that wasn't quite human and was still a little apey. Kind of like the guy you went out with last night. You know what I'm saying? From one little jawbone, from one little tooth. And somebody says, oh, amazing what science can do. Amazing what paleontologies can do. Amazing what anthropology can do. Amazing where we can come now that we can take a little piece like that and we can, we can come up with a complete skeleton of exactly what that was. No, what's amazing is how a guy would take one tooth, one piece of jawbone, one little piece of bone and, cre and create a whole skeleton just to get around the fact that the Bible's truth. That's what it is. Imagine showing up at the great throne judgment when all you had in your, in your nakedness of your filthy flesh was the tooth that you found. You find the unshaved liberal. He will, he will invent a system of works for salvation. He'll invent a system of works to, uh, to save yourself by something you can do. He'll completely nullify the cross. And I've told people this before. I'm a simple kind of guy. 
If you can work your way to heaven, if there's something you can do to merit God's salvation, I just got one question for you. And it's a simple question. Why did Christ come down and die? What was the point? Pretty pointless, wasn't it? He came down and died on the cross to save you, and then you have to do something to save yourself? Many devices in a man's heart. They come up with the idea of the social gospel, that you're going to help your fellow man and make your way to heaven by that. They come up with the idea of the fatherhood of God, that we're all God's creation, so therefore we're all God's children. Not true. It's an invention. It's an invention. And then you have the saved, born-again Christian who will think that he can take the perfect word of God that God has given us. And because he's educated, because he has a series of degrees, and because he has been learned in all the ancient languages, that he thinks that he can improve on a book that God himself wrote and gave to man. I do not know of a more arrogancy, of hypocrisy, that could ever be in a person's life to think that you could improve on the book that God wrote. But we do. And, and, and seemingly, I, I've been around this for a long time. I mean, this is, I mean, this is something that I just didn't find yesterday. I've watched this all my life. I'm 66 years old. I've been in the ministry over 40-some years. I've seen this thing. I've watched it. I've seen how that when it comes to God in the Bible and God in the Bible and the devil, that they just, it's just like they go brain dead. In all my years, and all the curriculums of the colleges and the Bible colleges in particular that I've ever seen, and the seminaries, I've never seen one, and I have looked, I've never seen one class ever taught on how the devil to try to destroy the church and the Word of God down through church history. When Philip Schaff writes his seven volumes, when Newell writes his three volumes, when these guys put their works out, when they write about our church and the history of the church, when Carnes wrote his and Barnes wrote theirs, let me tell you something. They wrote from a position that the devil was on vacation someplace. You think the greatest book in the world that the world has ever seen, do you actually think the devil missed this? I mean, just because you don't recognize what it is and you missed it doesn't mean that he did. He knows the greatest power on this earth. The greatest power on this earth is a common man with a common Bible. And if he can take that Bible from the common man, you're done. And he has. They don't even pay attention. It's almost like when you get to that point in your mind of your Christian education... When you become a doctor and a PhD, when you're so versed in the Greek and the Hebrew, that you're, you're so far extended out past. It's like the Bible doesn't matter anymore. Because you don't believe it's really anything to begin with. For me, I'm a simple guy. In my Bible, God strategically placed three warnings in the Word of God of somebody not to temper with the Bible. And he put it, if you only read through Deuteronomy, you'd find the first one in Deuteronomy 4 too. If you only read a little bit farther in the middle of the Bible in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, you'd find the second one there. And if you got real adventurous and read the whole Bible through, you'd find the third one in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. And along with that, the first attack... In the Bible that is recorded in Genesis of the devil, once God's plan got going, was against a woman by the name of Eve. And I'm going to tell you something. She's a great study in the Bible. She's a great study in the Bible. 
And, and if you look at your Bible and put that story together, she is a type of the church. And you don't get that from the Greek and the Hebrew. You get that from the English that God gave you. Her husband Adam was a type of Christ. He's called the first Adam. Christ is called the second Adam. You don't get that from the original languages. You get that from the Bible God gave you. And he shows you the model by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3 of the attack of the devil down through history against that book and the people he's going to use. There's a great little thing on television called Criminal Minds. And it's about FBI profilers. And it's amazing, I don't know what's their story, but it's amazing how they can just, they can just see a crime scene. And all the cops are standing around, twiddling their thumbs, saying, I wonder what happened. And these guys are putting together a profile. And before the movie, before the show's in, ten minutes into it, they got this guy nailed. They don't even know who he is. They know how old he is. They know he's male. They know he's white. They know he's this. They know he's that. They know he's educated. They got him. They got the profile down. Why? Because they're looking for patterns that they have trained themselves of human nature. And I'm going to tell you something. They'll fall far short of what you can do with the Bible because this book right here lays out human nature in a pattern so clearly. You can know exactly what you're dealing with, what you're up against. It's incredible. She's a type of a church. Adam's a type of Christ. Did you ever notice that the devil, when he showed up to destroy God's plan, did you ever catch it that he showed up when Adam wasn't at home? I don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. Don't you understand that that's a type of a church age? That right now Christ is not here, he's back up into heaven. And when the devil wanted to destroy with a type of a church what the word of God said and change it, he showed up. When the husband wasn't there. And the, Lord, the devil wants to destroy what you have as the church. In this church age when Christ is up there seated at the right hand of God the Father. And all that Eve had is all that you have. What God said. And when the devil come in. First words out of his mouth. When he wanted to destroy the universe. Wanted to destroy God's plan. It wasn't hey baby let's go get a drink. It wasn't hey baby let's go do this or do that. It was yea hath God said. And then he changed what God said. Human nature kicks in and Evie baby, she jumps right on board. Because human nature, remember now, God said in the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like the gods, knowing good and evil. Now I know the devil picked the woman because she's a type of the church. But he also picked the woman because a woman has to know everything. And when he, she heard that verse, you'll be like the gods, knowing good and evil, that was it. She said, where's that grape, man? I'm in. I'm in. Where's he at? Of course, we know it was an apple. My old grandmama used to say that it wasn't an apple, it wasn't, it wasn't a grape. The problem in Genesis 3 was the pear on the ground. She's pretty wise. She couldn't cook very well, but she's pretty wise. Someday I'll tell you a story about her cooking. No, I'm not going to go there today. The devil will use man to destroy all that God has given us. And Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 and 7 is a tremendous picture of all this. An absolute vital look to the mind of man and when it comes to a God and his word. 
I mean, he shows up the eve, the first type of the church in the Bible, when a type of Christ, Adam, wasn't there. He corrupts the Word of God. Maybe you don't get that. Maybe you can't see that. Maybe you have no clue with where you're at of what that's going on. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul got the connection. And you know what he said? You know what he said to the church? <coughs> He said, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He told the church that there was a connection between Adam and Eve and the church in Christ. And he said, when the devil showed up, he beguiled her. And when he beguiled her, what he did was he destroyed the simplicity of that is in Christ. And you know what the devil has done today? He's taken the word of God out of your life and made Christianity complicated. And what he has done is he destroyed and made it, he's taken the simplicity out of Christianity Amen. and made it hard. He took Bible verses and made it theology. He took salvation and made it sodiantology. He sent, he took the defense of the Bible and made it apologetics. He took preaching the Bible and made it hemorrhoid nudics. He took the simplicity that is in Christ and he made it complicated. And the reason why they make it complicated, because somebody wants you to come to them. Instead of going to the book. You ever go to your doctor? And you get a doctor and you start to tell you what's wrong and he talks about the gastric inflammation of your intestinal uh, body, whatever, and all through that stuff. And you listen to him and you're wondering what he's saying and the first thing you're thinking, you're going to die. And he's going on with these $25 words. And when it's all dead and son, said and done, you say, doctor, what is wrong with me? And he says, you got a pain in your stomach because you got too much gas. Why did he just say that to begin with? You go to the dentist. He says, well, your molars are encrusted and your bumper bicuspids are bad and we've got to get this over here. And why can't he say the big teeth on the bottom and the little teeth on the top, not very good? You know why he can't? Because he can't charge you the money he charges you if he talks that way. He does not want you to understand, so everybody develops a tradesman terminology. You go to the lawyer and he said, we're going to get rid of a hideous corpus. If the guy committed murder, he said, don't worry about it. I got rid of the corpus yesterday. <laughs> My buddy, Greg McClintock, I told you about him last week. He's preaching, he's a pastor now. He was a prosecutor. And there was a guy up there that killed an 86-year-old woman. Brutal murder. And it was terrible. And Greg prosecuted the case. So they're sitting down with their lawyer. And uh, Greg is trying to work some, talking about it. And his lawyer's there and the kid's there. And Greg says to the lawyer, I just want you to know, I'm going to charge him with first-degree murder. And I'm going to charge him with second-degree murder. I'm going to charge him with first degree and second degree murder. The guy looked at his lawyer and said, how can he charge me twice when I only killed her once? <laughs> and when it comes to the Bible, there's a tradesman terminology. You know why? They want you to come to them. They don't want you to go to your Bible. They don't want the Holy Spirit of God to be the ingredient that God takes to teach you the Word of God. They want to be the ingredient. They want to take the place of the Holy Spirit of God in your life that they can become, going right back to Isaiah 28 and Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, that they become God in your life. You know when you lose your Bible, you know what's wrong with Christianity today? And I'm just a simple guy. I'm no theologian. I can't even spell it. 
No, I can't. So I'm not even going to try. But you know what's wrong with Christianity today? I'll tell you what's wrong. When you lose your Bible, you lose seven vital aspects of Christianity. And when you do, you have absolutely no relationship with God. And so then at that point, you know what you do? When you can't get anything from the Bible anymore, now you've got to read man's books. Rick Warren's book on the, the uh, whatever it was, the, uh, what was it? The who? The Purpose Christian Life. It outsold the Bible. It outsold the Bible. It outsold the Bible for the first time in 400 years. And somebody said, whoa, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that nobody's getting anything out of the Bible anymore, so now they've got to go to man's book to get it. You think that book supersedes the Bible? Somebody asked me when that flap was all going on. Have you ever read the Purpose Driven, Purpose Driven, whatever that book's name is. Purpose Driven Life. Have you ever read that book? I said, I sure have. Amen. There's the real Purpose Driven Book of Life right here. You say, it doesn't have any pictures. Yeah, it does. You just don't know how to look for them. I like books with pictures anyhow. But what's wrong today is when you lose your Bible... You lose seven things. And when you lose these seven things, you're done. And this is exactly the devil's plan when he, when he put men who would destroy your faith in the Word of God. And this is what exactly the Laodicean church is. First off, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, the first thing that happens when you lose your Bible, you don't have any furnishings. Back in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle. That tabernacle had seven pieces of furniture in it. Every one of those pieces of furniture line up to something spiritual that you ought to have in your body today because your body is the temple and the tabernacle of God in the New Testament. Most of God's people don't even know what they were in the Old Testament, let alone know what they're in. in their. It's no wonder we have the problems we have in our lives when a saved, born-again child of God does not even understand the seven furnishings that you'd have in your body today if you're saved. I mean, what is the brazen altar? What is the laver of water out front? What is the golden candlestick? What is the shoe bread? What is the uh, altar of incense? What is the holy of holies? How do those things translate in a spiritual way from the literal Old Testament tabernacle to your body as a tabernacle? They do. You know what's wrong with God's people today? No furnishings. It says down there that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Truly. Truly. All of them in the Bible say thoroughly. And they missed the great teaching. You don't get strengthened to get God thoroughly. You get it truly. It starts with those seven pieces of furniture on the inside and manifests itself through you, thoroughly, outside. But who knows that? You know what's even worse? Who cares? Second thing, 
Not only do you lose your furnishings, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Then you do, the second thing you lose is the Bible does not work in you if you don't believe it. No working of God in your life. No spiritual growth. This is the reason so many of God's people today, I love them. They're saved. They're on their way to heaven. But you know what? You know absolutely nothing about that book. Nothing. I'm not talking about some new convert or some new Christian. I'm talking about somebody that has been saved for a number of years that you absolutely know nothing about what that book does in your life. So they get nothing from God. God doesn't work in them. And when God doesn't work in them, you see it in many churches. When God doesn't work in them and there's no power of God in the church, what do they revert to? They revert to the things that draw people in. They'll take a worldly band and make it Christian. They'll play music that if you close your eyes and didn't listen to the words, it could be in any nightclub, any disco. Any drug house. They'll put the big screen up there and they'll put the words of the pastor on it. You know why? Because they know nobody brings their Bible anymore. Because they've got brainwashed that they don't need to. You can go to church, don't bring your Bible, and just sit up there and they'll put everything out there for you. You go not to get preached to, you go to get entertained. You'll have singers that sway back and forth. You have light shows. One church over there in Kansas City, when the service starts, the lights go down, smoke comes out from under the thing, the lights come up, the band becomes swells up, and everybody, the pastor walks up and says, I will be like the Most High God. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's trying to say. you got to revert to those things when you don't. You know, isn't it amazing? Don't you wish that the missionaries in Africa and India and China would have had those things back in their day? Third thing, John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him, and he will come into him and make our abode with him. The, second, the third thing that you lose when you lose your Bible and I know you think you love God. I'm not saying you don't. But you love Him on your terms. You can't love God on your terms. You've got to love God on His terms. And that Bible says that when you don't have the Word of God, then you lose your ability to, in a biblical sense, love God. I'm not saying you're not appreciative to Him. I'm not saying you're not thankful to Him. I'm not saying you don't recognize who He is. I'm saying you cannot love God the way He wants you to love Him without a book that tells you how to do it. He didn't say, if a man loves me, he'll keep my original autographs. He didn't say, if a man loves me, he'll keep the Greek and the Hebrew. He said, if a man loves me, he'll keep my words. I had a person one time say to me, and I get feisty every once in a while. I had a, years ago, I had to interview a, a guy that was going to be a song leader for a church I was with. And they asked me to take him out and find out what he knew about the Bible. He's a nice kid. Worthless, but nice kid. Good singer. 
And so him and his wife went out, you know, and I took him out to eat. And I was very kind. And I said, well, they kind of wanted me to, uh, you know, find out we're not looking for just a, a guy who can lead singing. We're looking for somebody who can teach a Sunday school class and work with people. I said, we look. He said, oh, he said, yeah, that's, that's, I really like to do that. This is good. And I said, tell me about your... Tell me about your, your ability as a song leader and to be able to minister through music. And he says, I want to tell you right now. Right now as we speak, I know 200 songs that I could lead. 200 songs without any songbook. 200 songs I could either sing, I could lead, I could do everything. 200 songs, Bob, 200 songs right now I could do it. I said, that's, that's amazing. I said, I only know two. One of them's in the suite by and by and the other one isn't. I said, that's pretty amazing. I said, let's talk about the spiritual side of things. Do you think you could teach a Sunday school class? Absolutely. I said, good. Give me 200 Bible verses. Yeah, it got just as quiet and looked at me like you're doing right now. I said, I mean, I'm not being mean. I said, I'm just asking you. If you tell me the word of God is the most important thing in your life, why would you know 200 songs that you could sing right now, but you don't know 200 Bible verses? Now, his wife was pale now. She said, oh boy, we lost this job. We ain't going to get this thing. Well, they got the job, by the way. I mean, and he turned out to be a pretty good kid. But my point is this. God's people know nothing about the Bible today. They're good singers. They're good at this. They're good at that. And it's almost like because I don't have a Bible and I don't believe there's a real Bible, I don't have to really spend any time in the Bible. And yet you claim to love God. We all have things we hate. We all have things we hate. Bible says there's seven things that God hates. Does what you hate line up with what he hates? Do you even know what he hates? Bible says there's seven things that God loves. We all love things. I love you all. I love you. I love you. I love you, man. I just love you. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> we all love things. You know what God loves? You say, well, as a Christian, I want to please God. Seven things in the Bible that please God. You know what they are? Now, be careful with that, because one of the seven is God. It pleases God to confuse people on the Bible when they reject his word. Now, still love him? I have this little thing I always ask people. Somebody will say, you know so-and-so? And I'll say, yeah, I know so-and-so. He's a really good man. And I'll say, compared to who? They'll say, boy, he did a great job. Compared to what? You see, those terms are just relative terms unless you have a point of reference that you go back to. There's an absolute standard by which you're judging it by. You get that, don't you? I mean, all you get out of the sixth grade? Well, a guy says, I love God. Compared to what? By what standard? Well, I want to please God. Compared to what? We don't even know. This is what happens when you lose your Bible. The next thing, the fourth thing, John chapter 4, verse 24. It says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, the thing that's missing today in, in a Christian's life, there's no worship in most cases. This is the great definitive verse. Today, the idea of a biblical form of biblical worship is completely unknown to the child of God. You go to churches, see it on a marquee, nine o'clock worship service. Pastor gets up, okay, 
Come on forward, offering. We're going to worship God with our tithes and our offering. Somebody says, our choir now is going to come and sing for us and it's going to be a great time of worship. I had a pastor one time that put out a little brochure. We don't put a little brochure that tells you what's going on because we, we just don't do it. I mean, we don't have that much going on. But it was on there, he says, in the brochure it said, that was so funny. He says, tonight, come and hear our melodious choir sing in the evening service. And then the pastor will preach what it's like to go through hell. <laughs> You don't worship God in a service, folks. You don't worship God with music. You don't worship God with your tithes and your offering. You worship God in your spirit, human spirit, with the truth of the Word of God. That's what worship is. Worship isn't music. It isn't offerings. It isn't something that you... It isn't a church. Worship is a state of your attitude of heart that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. And your spirit is lined up to that truth, and that produces the worship. You don't go to a worship service. You and I should live 24-7 in a state of worship. How foreign is that today? You can only worship God with truth. You don't have the truth of the Word of God. you got no worship. Fifth one, John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask whatever you will, and it shall be done unto you. Next thing is, no power in your prayer life. Again, God's people, because they've had no Bible for so long, their prayer life is an absolute atrocity. They use the Bible and their prayer life with God to order God around to give me this. They use God to get them out in the prayer life to get them out of a bad situation that they don't want to be in. They never stop and consider that maybe God puts you in that situation for some purpose or some reason. Uh-uh, no, can't go there. I live in such a cushy Christian world where I want everything to be my way, everything to be happy, everything to be nice, and when a first little ripple of life comes into me that I don't get it my way, the way I want it, oh God, take it away! Years ago, there was a, a church, and it was a hellfire preaching church. There was a woman in the church that every time the pastor gave the invitation, she'd always, she'd always, she'd always come forward. And she was, she was coming of a facetious show, you know, everybody knew it was all phony. And she'd get up, and she'd hit the altar up there, and she'd say, Oh, God, fill me! Oh, God, every week! Oh, God, fill me! Oh, God, fill me! Every week when he gave the invitation, she'd come up there, Oh, God, fill me! After about years of that... One time the pastor had enough. She came forward. Got on that altar. Oh, God, fill me. The pastor said, no, God, don't fill her. Just fix the leak. <laughs> we don't know how to pray. Romans talks about, the Bible talks about three infirmities that we have. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, one of the infirmities is we don't pray for as we ought. And we don't do that because we don't know what the mind of the Spirit is. We can't know what the mind of the Spirit is because we've lost the mind of Christ. So we pray about everything. And I know the Bible says pray without ceasing, but it didn't say pray about everything. 
There's some things you don't need to pray about. God, I'm praying, should I be a soul winner? God, I'm praying, should I do something for you in my life? God, I'm praying. There's some things you don't have to pray about. In fact, you'd have a lot more time just praising God and telling how much you love Him if you just got in a book that already told you what you needed to pray for or what you didn't. You'd have a lot of time to, to sit there and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you so much. You're the love. I love you, I love you, Lord. I just love you, I love you, I love you. God upstairs, slow down a little bit. I can't, someone else is doing it over here too. I can't keep it straight. I love you, Lord. I love you. You're the best, you're the best, you're the best. Instead, I said, Oh, God, get me out of this. Oh, Lord, there's a highway patrolman on my tail. Don't let him see my driver's license. Don't let him see my license is out of date. God says, See that? They've expired. Get him. <laughs> Sixth one. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 and 10. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt not go all that I send thee, and whithersoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee. And the Lord saith the Lord. And the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my original autographs in your mouth. <laughs> he said, I have, put the, I have put the original Greek in your mouth. I have put my words in thy mouth. And see this day, I, over the, I have set thee over nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and then to plant. Now, I'm glad I got to this because by the look of some of your faces, some of you are happy with what I'm saying so far. So now I get to, get to exonerate myself here a little bit. And it simply says this. When you lose your Bible, you've got no power in preaching. So you revert to being a teacher. And the hallmark of great Christianity today in the 20, 21st century are great teachers. Nobody's preaching to paint off the wall anymore. Nobody's preaching on sin. You haven't heard a good message on hell in 30 years. You haven't heard a church in this city, whether it's an evangelical or most Baptist churches, where the pastor got up and just took your hide off on the judgment seat of Christ, or, 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 or some other area that is dealing uh, in our personal lives. It doesn't happen. We're teachers today. And teaching's important. But preaching's important too. You don't, you don't motivate people by teaching. You motivate them by preaching. You don't get people right with God by teaching. You get them right by preaching. And in fact, if you notice it here, it tells you the six missing elements in Christianity today. The lost art of preaching. The lost art of the ability to stand in a pulpit, take the Word of God, and paint a picture that you just don't miss. He says that when you get the Word of God in your mouth, when God touches your lips and put it in your mouth, that He sets you over the nations. To do six things. First, root out. You know there's some things you need to root out of your life this morning Amen. that teaching won't do. Amen. You know there's some sin in our lives that we can allow to be there when somebody's teaching because it's so passive. I tell you what, whatever you got in your life or wherever you're at this morning, I don't care where the guy goes or where he starts. When he starts coming down that aisle and the Holy Spirit of God starts dealing with it, whatever your problem is, is going to come to the surface. You may not like it, you may not agree with it, but it's coming. And then the second thing he says, you've got to pull down some things. Then he says, you've got to destroy some things. Then you got to throw down some things. 
Then, when you get those four things done, and they only get accomplished through preaching and the power of preaching, then you can build and plant. This is where most churches fail. They teach all the time. Or even when they preach, there's nothing about anything specific that targets you because they don't want to lose you because no bucks, no buck Rogers. <laughs> so they're very passive even in their preaching, if they even preach at all. Oh, they'll preach about salvation, preach about hell. They'll never get into your world where you live because they're not going to make you mad. My job is to make you all mad. <laughs> I get up in the morning, look in the mirror. Who am I going to make mad today? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who am I going to let them have it today? He says, everybody. Because you know what? When you, sometimes you have to get mad about something before you look at yourself. Do you always want people... Go, I shouldn't even ask this. Does everybody want to go around and everybody just tells you what you want to hear about yourself? Of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not good for you. God gave us his word. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, verse 30. Oh, what a great verse. He says, Is not my word like a fire? You bet it is, saith the Lord. Like a hammer. <laughs> I remember coming out of a church service and said, How'd it go, man? I got hammered. Is <laughs> not my word like a fire, saith the Lord? Like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? That rocks your heart. Amen. That rocks what you're hanging on to. The teaching won't touch. Boy, preaching will. Do you ever see a real hot SWAT team make an entry on a house? Six guys lined up out there. Everybody's got their hand on the guy in front of them. Everybody following in. One guy, des everybody designated for the corner of the house. Everybody's going to scream at their talk for their lungs. I can't say what they scream, but it's basically put your hands up. <laughs> And they're waiting there in line. And all of a sudden, they got one guy that's going to breach the door. He smashes it with that deal. Everybody's in right now. Everybody's in right now. I mean, they overwhelm them so fast that that guy or girl or couple, whoever it is, don't have a chance to react. That's what preaching does. Did you see a SWAT team lined up? Hi. <laughs> we're the KCPD SWAT team and we're just here to put you under arrest and uh, we really like you to put that gun down because uh, we're here to, to have some fellowship with you on the way to jail and uh, there's no need for this because I'm okay, you're okay you know what, you got your problems I got mine, I know I got a badge and you got the gun but we're all here to get along kumbaya, come on let's just is that how they do it? That's exactly what teaching will do when you have sin in your life. Amen. You don't need a nice, easy entry. You need God's SWAT team to kick down the door, Amen. cover every exit, look behind the door, under the bed, flip things off, off the floor, off yeah. the wall, knock them down, and put you <laughs> under arrest. <laughs> that then when you're sitting in that gospel squad car, <laughs> by the preaching of the word of God the Holy Spirit of God comes down and says I want to read you your rights you have the right to remain silent but I wouldn't tell you to do that because confession is really good to me you have a need if you need a lawyer one will be appointed for you but you don't have one because you have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous 
No power in preaching. Now, the seventh thing. No inheritance. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all uh, the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper wherever thou goest. Here it comes. The book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and shalt mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Being strong of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee wherever thou goest. He says here that you lose the Bible, you lose your inheritance. You lose your inheritance. You lose your inheritance. Now I'm going to say something, and it's not popular today in the 20th century, but whoever cared about being popular when it's the truth. We got a lot of people today that think that your reward to the judgment seat of Christ and your inheritance is based on what you do. And I hear this all the time. Well, you know, I know he doesn't have the right Bible. I know they don't do this, but they're really, really, he's really a good guy. They're, she's really a good girl. They're really good people. Compared to what? Let me tell you something. I've heard it all my life. Well, he, I can't believe that you can say that about this guy. He's a great preacher. He's got a great church. He's got a great dad. And I'll say, yeah, and he's also got a great old sin nature. And we all do. Some of the men of the biggest churches I ever saw in my life had the biggest ungodly nature you ever saw on this, on this planet when it came to the Word of God. And we think because a guy is a Christian or a woman's Christian and because they're saved and they talk about loving God and talking about this, that negates the fact that they've got an old sin nature and they don't want to revert back to being like Lucifer and be like the Most High God. You're, you're wrong on that one. Let me tell you something. Human nature will always be human nature. And I'm telling you, you can be the nicest person on the planet. You can help the sick, help the poor, do everything you want to do. You can spend all your life and you can do everything that you do for God and church and ministry, whatever you want to do. You can be a missionary around the world and you can, you can do all those things. And if your base doesn't go back to an absolute standard of the word of God that God has given you, you are wasting your time. And that's not popular today. Because we want to negate the Bible as the final authority. We want what we do to be the final authority. We want ourselves to say because a guy does really good and he claims to love God and he does the ministry and he does this and he does that, somehow God is going to overlook the fact that he rejected his word. And I'm going to tell you something. Everything in Christianity goes back to one thing. The Word of God. The truth of the Word of God. And the question here today is simply this. Do you have the very words of God? Do you have His truth? Yes. One time back in the Old Testament. Eli's boys were priests. And they were in charge of the, of the, of the altar and the candlesticks. And uh, the Bible says that one day God came down and God killed them. 
And I've had people, I've had people say to me, well, you know, I'm not sure why God did that. I mean, they, they, they were priests. They were working in the temple. Those candlesticks are supposed to stay burning forever. They knew that. They did the best they could. They kept the fires burning. I don't understand why God is so upset that he would come down and kill those guys because they got, they started to kept that fire going with what God called strange fire. And a lot of people look at that and they say, wow, I don't, you know, I don't. It's like that story about your, uh, the guy that, uh, uh, that they're taking the ark on the ox cart. And they're carrying it along, you know, and they're taking it back from the Philistines. And this guy, this guy, you know, it's, they, they got it on an ox cart and they're taking it back to Jerusalem. And the ox stumbles and the, and the thing begins to falter. And one good guy puts up his hand and keeps it from hitting the ground. And God killed him. And I've had people say, God having a bad day? What is that all about? Here's a man who did the best he thought he was doing. The ark of God was going to fall over. All he did was put his hand up and try to stop it. And God killed him. Those poor guys back there of Eli's sons, they just, they knew they had to keep the fire going. They got fire. They kept it going. What's the big deal? The big deal is that God always operates by his truth. That ox cart deal back there. But that guy reached up and tried to, first of all, it's a picture of, of religion today, Christianity. That ark was not ever, 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 ever to be carried on an ox cart. It had rings in the side that they put staves and poles through. It was to be carried on the shoulder of the priests and never on an ox cart. That ox cart is a picture of man taking something that is absolutely precious and holy to God and then putting it into a world system to get it where you want it to go. They didn't put it on an ox cart so they could, they could carry it down there. That's a picture. That, that, that ark of the covenant is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're to put the staves through it, put it on their shoulders and carry it. One, two, three, four guys carry it. You know why? Because in Christian, in real Christianity, you bear the burden of the load of the ministry. Amen. You carry it on your shoulder. Amen. You don't put it on a man-made ox cart and let it go. You carry it. You carry the burden. This is what's wrong in churches. The pastors don't have the burden. You don't have the burden. The people don't have the burden. So when it comes to Christianity, they build it on a man-made worldly ox cart and look at it go. There's way God intends things to be done, folks. The first thing you need to learn about your Bible is in the Bible. God has certain ways he requires things to be done. The second thing you better learn in your Bible, there are certain ways he wants you to do things in your life. You think that poor little guy back there that reached up and wasn't trying to help God? You think, it wasn't do, you think his attitude of heart wasn't right? You think he wasn't trying to do the best he could? You think he wasn't saying, oh my goodness, God's ark is going to fall. I can't let that happen. 
It doesn't matter what your motive is. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. It doesn't matter how good you try to do it. When you step outside that book and you do it your way, you're on your own. You're on your own. Going back to Eli and his boys, God killing them over the strange fire. Everybody says, what's the big deal? Fire is fire. Everybody says today, what's the big deal? Bible's the Bible. Ministry's the ministry. That seven golden sandalsticks represented the Holy Spirit of God. That's, that incense that burned without there represented the prayer life. And it represents the aspect of the Holy Spirit of God in prayer. Those fires were to burn continually. They were to never to go out. And when they were originally lit, when they originally kept going, and when they started to get low and they had to be refired up again, they had to get the fire off of the brazen altar. It couldn't come from their bick. It couldn't come from their match kitchen matches. It couldn't come from a blowtorch. It couldn't come from some outside fire. It represented what God was. And that brazen altar represents the place where Christ's sacrifice was made for you. And the Holy Spirit of God and everything he does goes back to that sacrifice on that brazen altar. And the fire that kept those things alive in that temple had to go back to the day Christ died for you. And if you, if me, anybody are doing what you're doing for God Almighty, doing what you're doing in the ministry for any other reason than what he did for you in that brazen altar, you've lost it all and you're wasting your time. God has a way he wants things done. The Bible tells you how he wants them done. And when you lose your Bible, you lose how he wants it done. And the little guy back there said, oh, I'll get it. Boom. Eli's boy said, come on, man, let's get this fire going. We got some girls we got to meet tonight. Boom. God's people today, because they have no Bible. They have no absolute. They have nothing to anchor their soul in to understand what pleases God, what God wants out of them, what God requires out of them, how they love God, how that God's going to work in them, the furnishings in their life. They just follow what they idea that the ministry is. They're good people, nice people, salt of the earth people. So what when it comes to the truth of the word of God? Yeah. Let God be true and every man a liar. The book is the book. And if you think that just like they could do whatever they want to do in a tabernacle, getting the fire wherever they wanted to get it, when that fire represents Christ's death on the brazen altar of that lamb and a sacrificial lamb with a cross of Calvary, and for you and for me, whatever we do in life, whatever our prayer life is, whatever we do for God, whether it's a shoe bread, or whatever you're doing with God, if it doesn't go back to what he did for you on Calvary's cross, you're wasting your time. And certainly, certainly, if you're doing what you're doing, no matter how good you are at it, no matter what big a church you got, no matter how many people come to Christ, you don't judge a man's ministry on how big his church is and how many people come to Christ. You judge his ministry on one book, the truth of God's word. Just like it has to go back to the fire, everything we do has to go back to the absolute. Why are we doing what we're doing?
Do you have the words of God? Do you have it today? That's not a question. That's a, just, uh, uh, but thank you. But do you have it today? Are you sure you got it? Let me see which one you got. <laughs> do you have it today? Has it made a difference in your life? Is, is it something that has changed everything about you? To the point that you do what you do, not because Bob wants you to do it, not because it's, it's things to do. You do it because you're in a church that is led by the Word of God and believes the book, and God is going to open up a thousand avenues. And through the Holy Spirit of God and your relationship with that, the Holy Spirit of God will say, this is where I want you to be and what I want you to do. But never forget, you're not doing it because of Bob. You're not doing it because it's a Christian thing to do. You're doing it because God mandated you through the perfect Word of God and gave you the direction to do it. All we got. All we got, guys. The only thing that separate us, separates us from Buddhists, Jehovah Witnesses, morons, <laughs> Seventh-day disadvantages, Charismatics, Muslims, Evangelicals, 99% of the Baptists, the Methodists, Presbyterian, the Episcopalian, the, the, all of them. The only thing that separates us and what we have from every other religion on this planet. The only one thing that makes the difference between us and them. We have an absolute standard. Amen. We have a book we believe. Amen. We have a book we believe that God brought down to man and gave it to man. Perfect. Amen. And you have a pastor here that believes that. You have also have a pastor here that knows beyond any shadow of doubt. In no way, shape, or form is this human piece of garbage ever going to be able to sit and stand judgment on this book. Amen. You'll never hear me get up in the pulpit and say, now in the original it didn't mean that. It means what it says the way it said it. If I can't figure it out, there's something wrong with me. There's never anything wrong with the book. Amen. Now this is the introduction to Proverbs 18. <laughs> I can do two things. I got nine minutes to give you the rest of the sermon. Lay it out. We stay here till midnight tonight. I got a better idea. I'll bring you back part two next week. Now that you understand where we're at, you have all week long to think about it. Look about it. Listen to it. I'm going to come back next week. I'm going to show you the mindset. Hardest thing for me to believe was why a safe person could tear apart the Word of God and tell another young man or young lady, don't trust what that Bible says. Trust me. We'll show you next.